Well, good morning and welcome, Trinity Bible Church, as well as visitors or family that might be uh, visiting, which technically would make you visitors. Uh, welcome as well. We are uh, continuing through the Gospel according to Matthew. Uh, we are in chapter 18 and we'll be covering verses 10 through 14, although we will be reading uh, verses 1 through 14 to get the, um, the fullness of, of the text as it is in itself. Um, uh, one, one brief uh, uh, or quick announcement, um, now that uh, we're, we're back, summer's over, uh, we will be having, um, or I should say, I'll be hosting a, another men's luncheon, October 1st, Sunday, October 1st. Uh, and so we'll be going, an email going out, um, uh, looking for, for sign-ups for, for food, generally, it's a lot of broccoli, um, <laughs> And, and rice cakes for dessert. I'm just, I'm looking out for your husbands. Um, yes, unsweetened tea. Um, you see there's laughter, but I'm, I'm so serious right now. And so... Uh, so that, that'll be coming out, and we'll be doing those cyclically over and over again, and each will have a certain um, specific uh, kind of dual focus. And so this one, October 1st, where we've talked about aspects of um, men leading family worship, whether they have children or do not have children, um, is, is something that we, uh, the elders, are, are emphasizing um, as a need in in the church and something that was and had been a a a pillar of the Christian family since the first century, and so uh, we talked about it. We we've recommended books, but but this one will be a little bit different in that it will be um, we're going to have books that are going to be here for you to take that will lead into a study. It's a very small book, so don't don't get frightened. Um, that I w- that I will lead to to help us all hold each other accountable for this aspect of family worship. So that'll be one of the subjects of the luncheon. The second uh, subject will be something a a future study coming up where the title is called Mortify, and it's going to be have different subjects to it. The night hasn't been chosen yet or anything like that, but it's simply going to be men gathering together discussing mortifying sin or putting sin to death in your life. And so that'll be the subject of this particular luncheon. Much more details will come out. I just didn't want that to go by uh, without mentioning it. Now, entering into the time of of worship here in the text, uh, we are, again, reading from uh, verses 1 through 14 in chapter 18 of the Gospel according to Matthew. After I can finish the reading, I ask that you would take time to, to pray silently through the power of the Holy Spirit and through God's Holy Word, asking the Holy Spirit to illuminate your heart and mind uh, to the truth of the Word. And if you are here and you are an unbeliever, you are outside of the church, I ask that you just consider the words um, that you hear today. Consider the worship of God as we present it to you today. Uh, something that you are lacking and called to. Now reading from verse 1 through 14, Matthew 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, 
put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father, who is in heaven, that one of these little ones should perish. Please take this time to pray. Heavenly Father, as your church gathers here on this Lord's Day to worship and adore you, we come in thankfulness and rejoicing at the sacrifice of the Son on the cross, of redemption purchased once for all, the salvation for the elect of God. And God, now we are here this morning to continue in a, in a time of, of public worship where already we have worshiped through fellowship, through prayer, through song, and now we continue in the time of the word. Lord, may the believers, may your church 
May through the Holy Spirit in your word, may we see more and more the beauty of Christ, the glory and the salvation and righteousness which has been bestowed on us, those who have done nothing to earn such favor. And now, God, encourage us through your word. Bring us in confrontation with our own sinfulness, but comfort us, God, with the truth of the gospel, that we, your weak people, be made strong, that we be made reminded of the future glory that awaits us when Christ comes to consummate his kingdom. And may that abiding hope drive us in this life of conflict with ourselves as aliens and sojourners in foreign land here in this fallen place. May we continue to rejoice in this time of worship of your great mercy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In the beginning part of these, these chapters that we read last week in chapter 18, we have this parable of, of the, the, the apostles, who at this time were simply just called the disciples, uh, having a discussion. And we, we read the parts from both Mark and Luke last week where it showed that their Matthew doesn't include is that this was actually a, a fight that they were having with one another, an argument. And what their argument focused on was greatness. And what they were really seeing is who amongst us will be the greatest or who amongst us will be at the right hand of Jesus or the left hand of Jesus, these places of authority. And again, it will come up later um, in a couple of chapters as, as one of, the, one of the, the mothers of some of the disciples will ask the same question. This was something that was both cultural and probably innate in all people is where do I stand in the midst of my peers? And so their, their focus was greatness. And, and it was a, a foregone conclusion, as we just read, <clears throat> excuse me, that, that the disciples were going to be in this kingdom that Christ had been preaching since he had chosen them. And so this kingdom, which is our inheritance, when will we be, who will be the greatest and so their focus was they're already included, but also who among them will be the most revered? And so Christ, taking a child and putting them before them, doesn't tell them to focus on greatness. He tells them to focus on humility. And, and the irony isn't lost, and, and the, the focus isn't lost, that as Christ is pointing to humility, he's pointing to himself. The God-man, the second person of the Trinity, who created all things and is going to redeem his people, here in the flesh is in a period of what is known historically of great humiliation, willing humiliation of taking on flesh. And so the, the disciples, I, I 
taking their eyes off or forgetting, if you will, everything they've seen and heard, which is synonymous with fallen man, are reminded by this example, this child that was put before them, that was showing in some way or another this this attribute of humility. And this humility is put forth as one who will be the greatest in the kingdom. And then little child and little one, different Greek words, but, but interchangeable within the text, becomes an example of believers, of a, a humble believer. And so the, the disciples are shown not only what they should be talking about is which one of us will be the most humble in the kingdom, or which one of us will serve the others more in the kingdom, which one of us really will have a heart like the Lord who is serving and is humbled and his humiliation is before us at all times. And so then the text begins to talk about little child, little one as disciple of Christ, as believer in Christ. And then goes to talking about transitions to sin and the sin of the world. And even really warns the disciples about sin in their own life. Better to cut off a hand, better to take out an eye. All this, this kind of graphic imagery to take sin deadly serious. But we know that the little child, little one is still the focus or disciple at this time. As he goes into this last portion of it before we get to when you talk about Matthew 18... There's only one set of verses anyone ever even thinks about in Matthew 18, and it's none of these, but all of these are leading up to community life, if you will, the the idea of life together in a covenant community, in what will be the church, what will be this kind of inaugurated new kingdom that Christ is representing and starting. What will life look like for those who are not seeking out their own greatness, but are rather seeking humility and imitation of the Lord. What will they look like when they interact with one another? What will be the defining feature? Will it be arguing about who's the best? Or will it be in subservience one to the other? That's where this this next portion really leads to and then continues when it talks about what is predominantly thought about church discipline into this more famous part of Matthew 18. And now, looking in 10, I'm just going to tell you right now, if you're excited about angelology today, you are going to be so disappointed because that's not the point of this group of text. I'm going to talk about it. It'll maybe last three minutes and 28 seconds. Someone can time me. And the reason will be, okay, don't actually time me. It'll take longer than that. Everyone knows that. But so, in 10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. He's going back to, to this using little ones rather than little child. No one despises one of these little ones, one of these believers, one of these disciples. For I tell you that in heaven... Their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So I want to take a few things to to kind of point out at the beginning. There's several phrases in here that are actually unique to Matthew. And so in Matthew, the beginning one says, See that no, no one does despise one of these little ones. 
that word, the Greek word for despise, he's only used in one other occasion, which was actually part of our scripture reading this morning. And no one can serve two masters because they will come to despise one over the other. It's a word that that doesn't exactly mean hatred. It has more to do with the idea of of ridicule or a lack of, of respect or a lack of that can lead to something else. And so as he's continuing to talk about the, the reality of humility and the disciple and the little ones that are in the kingdom, see to it, talking to who would become the apostles, you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you, in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now, I generally don't like trivia because when you, I say this word or this phrase only happens one other time in the New Testament, I almost feel at times that that's all people remember. But I'm going to do it anyways. There's only one other occasion that this phrase, their angels, takes place. And it's in Acts. And it happens as it says, it must be his angel. It's this idea of a, of a personal angel. And yes, this verse and that verse in Acts is where you get what would become the medieval understanding of guardian angels. Boo. And so the reality is, that this whole concept of, of kind of individual angel was a very new kind of system of belief within f- what would become first century Judaism. It was really kind of the intertestamental period, really the, the, about a century before the birth of Christ. You had the writing of a couple of, of what would become non-canonical books or apocryphal books, in, in predominantly one known as Tobit. And in Tobit, you have, which is, not a, which is not a part of the Jewish canon, it's not a part of the Christian canon, although it became that in the, during the time of the medieval church, what many of you might have grown up with, even if you were, grew up in, say, in a Roman Catholic background or went to a Catholic school or something like that. The Apocrypha is seen as equal to parts of Scripture. Tobit would be one of them. And Tobit has an interchange between two angels, and one of them, Raphael, tells another one, tells one of the people that's one of the protagonists in the book, that the way it works is that the prayers of the saints are actually given to the angels, and the angels fly the message to God to give it to them. So the angels work as intermediary between man and God. Now, theologically, there's a big problem with that. Would you not say uh, the Bible's pretty clear that man has already an intermediary between God and man. And, and the author of Hebrews is explicit in, in, in the idea that of the, the defunct idea of, of something like this. But this is a, I give you all that background to say that it's not even the most important part of what is being said about their angels. What the most important part is, is when Jesus says the following phrase, or said the following phrase written by Matthew. The angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. 
It's another phrase that's utterly unique to Matthew in all of the New Testament. My Father who is in heaven. The other gospel authors don't use the same Greek phrase that Matthew uses. And the reality is, is that the essence of what he's saying is that these little ones, these disciples, these who are defined by being humble or, 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 or emulating Christ in humiliation, the ones who watch over them are always before the face of God, meaning the, the important aspect is where they're located. They're located before God, and the, the ministering spirits in the New Testament, as they're called, or angels, are here as task people who are here to care for and minister to God's elect. We see that in the interaction with angels in the Gospels, as, as particularly with, with the mother of Christ, Mary, as well as you see um, the, the, the parents of John the Baptist, and you see as elsewhere, again, in the book of Hebrew, Hebrews is explicit with the idea of the angel's task is to be before God and minister to the church. And so the idea of individual guardian angels who are sitting on your shoulder is not something that's an actual fluid biblical thought because the ones who are ministering to us, their main location is the throne room. And all the other places that we see angels in the New Testament in particular is in this aspect of worship of God. And when they're moving about the earth or doing things, they're generally doing it as messengers or as ministers or those who are helping God's elect, both in the Old and the New Testament. That was longer than three minutes and 30 seconds. My fear is I don't, I've already, no one's coming back. They're like, nope, I need more, more angel stuff. Um, on Wednesday nights, we have more, more specific teaching. Uh, we won't be talking about angels for any time soon, but maybe it'll come up. And so... All that to say is, this is not an endorsement of the theology of guardian angels as was pushed in the first century Judaism, or in really what became something that was, was more of a medieval belief um, from apocryphal works. This is just pointing out, angels are here to serve the church. Angels are here to help God's elect. And that's, that's the reality. And so the focus is still, if you're paying attention, not the distraction of what are angels and what does this mean. It's the worth, the worth of this little one, the value of the little child, the value of the disciple to God. Christ has warned them better to die a terrible death than to draw one of these into sin. Better to cut off and pull out anything of yours that might draw one of these others to sin. Not only that, don't despise or look down on another little one because The angels are before God's face in his presence 
who minister to them. It's a categorical building of worth and value. And again, you have to think, what were they asking? Who's the greatest? They're measuring their worth, their value, and they're wanting to see it in some kind of concrete promotion in heaven. When we get there, you may have seen all the stuff, Peter, but you're pretty dumb. I'm pretty sure I'm going to be greater than you. You haven't seen me use my sword yet. Watch your mouth. (laughs) This kind of idea is like, the reality is we often, that, that's how we think. It's how, it's how the world works. When you, have, when you have a vocation in any way or a job, don't you want to see that someone else sees value in your work? Whether it's through, wow, really good job. Or, hey, you're, I'm seeing a lot out of you. I want you to have another position. I want you to be above and beyond. This goes across the board. This goes whether you're a businessman. This goes against you work with your hands. This goes if you're a writer. This goes if you're a mother. This goes as if you're a child. You want someone to acknowledge your worth, your value. And yet, how quickly that was twisted into what we really want to see is who amongst us is going to be closest to Christ in this new kingdom. Just just like us to think that way. And then he systematically destroys that notion by saying, humility. Don't seek to be the greatest, seek to be the least. And not just that, let me tell you something about the least. Let me tell you something about these little ones who are focused on, on humility better for someone to die an almost impossible way to die better better for you to mutilate yourself and then lead one of them away never look down on another disciple because the ones who watch over them are already in the presence of God you see this he's building to something When all you read is the next section of 18, you've missed that Jesus is actually building a theology of how the church interacts with one another. Worth, value. So often, too often, you're going to see as he moves forward in the lost sheep aspect, too often, we don't see each other in the eyes that Christ is describing, one who God has looked at with such value. We know the order of salvation, right? Or many of you do. In eternity past, God chose those to whom he would redeem, right? Ephesians 1, before you were born, before you were created, before you'd done anything, Before you were knit in your mother's womb, God knew you, loved you, and set you apart. The work of the Father. And then, at a certain time, in God's 
good pleasure in history sent the son after a long period of failures, but a long period of God's grace over his people. Christ comes in his humiliation, takes on the form of man. Takes on the form of man such humiliation. Fulfills the law. The whole point of the law, if you're looking at this from a truly biblical way, was for that one moment. For Christ to fulfill it and to hold it. And then to obediently go to the ultimate aspect of his humiliation to the cross. And to be crushed. And to die. And take the curse of sin from all of his people, yours and mine, in that moment. Dies. Is resurrected. Amongst the faithful for many weeks. Ascends publicly, promising to return. Promising first to send the helper. God the Father, God the Son. Send God the Holy Spirit to the faithful. To the elect in Christ. And you are regenerated. You are given new life. Your body is the temple of God. And now you are, by God's good pleasure still, put in communion with one another and union with Christ. All through the work of God. Look around you. If they're a believer in Christ in this room, that's everyone. So when he's saying, do not despise, do not look down, we're not supposed to see each other in the way that we see people as man sees people. I don't like the way that person looks, smells, blah, blah, blah. They, they, they talk weird. We're supposed to see each other with Christ's eyes. Just like me. God sees them with infinite value. Infinite worth. Unimaginable love bestowed on them by God. Not because they're awesome, and neither am I, but because God is. Do not despise one of these little ones. Moving down. And then he uses this parable. The interesting thing about these parables that Jesus uses is that as an inerrant preacher, as someone who was traveling from place to place with his own students, what you're going to see in different Gospels, the same story is used, essentially, with a different audience. And so in Luke 15, this same parable is given with a little bit of a different ending. And the audience isn't the disciples. The audience is who? His opponents. And before that, it says, the tax collectors and the sinners surrounded him. And so the Pharisees accused him of blah, blah, blah. And then Jesus uses the lost sheep parable to discuss God's desire to save the lost. It's an important point. I'm trying to make an important point. 
The same parable that Jesus uses in Luke, he's going to use here to talk about rescuing the saved. Isn't that interesting? Christ's desire to save the lost, Christ's desire to rescue the saved. You're confronted with this redeeming love that none of us are worthy of, except for the reason that he says we're worthy of it. And so this this parable, if it sounds familiar, but not quite in this context, it's used in a different way in Luke 15. But here he writes, what do you think? He's still still instructing his prideful, what would become apostles. What do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 in the mountains and go in the search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. This is another emphatic challenge. There's been a couple of them in here already. In 10, when it says, see that you do not despise one of those ones. In the Greek, it's a, it's a challenge. He's just saying the words, look, do you see? Are you paying attention? And here it goes again. What do you think? There's, there's an emphatic statement that Matthew wrote here based on the teaching of Jesus that he really wants the disciples to pay attention at these two parts. See that you don't despise. And what do you think if a man does this? Again, he's still talking about the value. And so he uses what becomes probably the most widely used example in Israel's history, as well as one that Christ used often. It's the shepherd and the sheep. It's used over and over again. Christ is called the great shepherd. This this one in particular is probably an allusion to to a group of texts in the book of Ezekiel. I'm going to read... Just a few to give you an idea. This isn't a, when I say an illusion, often in the New Testament, they're, they're, Jesus or the apostles are grabbing the thought of, of a certain portion of Old Testament and not necessarily quoting it word for word from the Hebrew. But there's enough pieces that they grab where you go, oh, The audience, especially Matthew's audience, which is primarily Jewish, who's receiving this letter, would have been like, oh, he's talking about this aspect from the prophet Ezekiel. He's talking about this from from the psalmist. He's talking about this from David. And so I want you to hear a couple things. There's one thing that that is repeated in Matthew in this shepherd-sheep analogy a few different ways. If you remember when Jesus saw that the crowds were hungry, and what did he say? And they looked like... Sheep without a shepherd. And so this this thing kind of continues, but in Ezekiel, there's a condemnation against the shepherds of Israel. And then he's going to talk about a time where he himself, God himself, will shepherd. And so I just want you to kind of see him just for a little background sake. Starting 34.5 in Ezekiel, so they were scattered because there was no shepherd. 
And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains. There's the mountains. And on every high hill. My sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. You see it? Therefore, you shepherds, hear the words of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God. Surely because my sheep have become a prey. And my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts. Since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep. Do you see it? But the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. Verse 11, for thus says the the Lord God, behold, I myself will search out my sheep and I will seek them out. You, so everyone, I, I should be seeing a lot of nods right now. And not like you're falling asleep nodding, like, but you're hearing the, the repetitive phrases. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will see, seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. I will bring them out from the peoples, gather them from the countries, will bring them into their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines and in the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel they shall be grazing land. I myself, verse 15, will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. You see it? So as it probably alluding to Ezekiel as well as a multitude of other passages, Jesus now paints this picture of these little ones. Do not despise them. He's already talked about for anyone who causes them to sin. And now he gives this imagery of one who has a hundred sheep and, and one has gone astray. And so the picture is not to be taken like, wow, that's a lot of sheep. That was probably a wealthy person. That's not the point. The point is, The sheep were all in one location. They're safe. Don't bring in the analogy either of of Psalm 23. Well, this is about because sheep are dumb. That's That's also not what the focus is. The focus of these are the shepherd's possession with whom he loves. But there's a hundred of them that he loves. And one has gone astray. But the 99 have not strayed. And that's why he's asking the question, who doesn't leave the 99 to go rescue this one who has strayed? And the language itself is, it's leaving you a little bit open to the idea of how you're going to define what it looks like to stray. So this is, in this use of this parable, dealing with God's elect. This is not talking about unbelievers. This is someone who is the sheep who's been redeemed, rescued. In this kingdom, the disciples were so worried about where their glory would be in that kingdom. The temptation he alluded to, the sin 
has drawn one away. And really the best way you could kind of interpret that is that they're being led away. Now one commentator mentioned a few things. Look at it in terms of sheepy things, he, he wrote. I didn't, that, that's what it was written. Grass is always greener. And then he used a bunch of analogies to point to things we say. Grass is always greener where? On the other side. So this idea of looking and seeing something, yielding to temptation, and going to it. Another way is someone, as kind of is described in here, being tempted by someone or something specifically and being drawn away. So the shepherd, the chief shepherd, is telling the disciples, the apostles, who will inherit the leadership of the church and guide the church when Christ is back in his glory. These ones whom I died for, whom I've had seen with as much worth as you, not only will they be led astray, but they're going to need someone to rescue them. The reality is, far too often, someone you know is a believer, sins, fails. And how do we respond? Do we respond as a rescuer? Do we look on them and see them with Christ-centered eyes? God sees them as a treasure, as a recipient of his very own righteousness. More often than not, we don't pursue them as a rescuer. We simply Condemn them. Look at them. I wonder if they're a believer. Tell me I'm wrong. You don't get to. I have the microphone. But we're more apt to believe that we can stand in God's place as judges than we are to look on them and go, They're in need of rescue. And that's what Christ commanded his apostles to do. And since he commanded the apostles, he's commanding us as well because we go down on the lineage of of the apostles' teaching. He's pointing out a reality here that some will go astray. In horrifying ways. And our job isn't to, with immediacy, go, must be an unbeliever. How do you know that? 
Have you pursued them? Have you shown them their sin? Begged with them? Grieved with them? Whatever led them to whatever that sin might be? Given them time to process that? Their call to repentance? Or do we just say, away with you, sinner? Blindness. Paul uses the incredibly uncomfortable example from 1 Corinthians of an adulterous affair within the church itself that had been going on for a long time. And this individual had been confronted. And now Paul, with authority, writes a letter. It's in the center of of the letter that he writes in 1 Corinthians, pointing to the importance of what he's writing both before and after. And he makes a judgment as an apostle to cast that person out. Why? Because after a time of being told to repent, They refuse and are arrogant about it. But even then, Paul doesn't call them an unbeliever. He says to treat them like one. And you get to this horrifying place of of excommunication, this individual being cast out of the local fellowship because they are arrogant and prideful about their own sin that they've been confronted about. And then a couple years later, when 2 Corinthians is written... What does Paul write about that individual? Allow him back in. Because evidently there's been evidence of him repenting of everything and for being outside of the church for quite some time. What mercy. What what truth to, to be able to view someone who has... You are confronting that. You are, you are looking at, I know this person is astray. I know this person is sinning. I need to pursue them. I need to plead with them. This is not the life that a follower of Christ lives. Repent. Come back. We got the judgment thing down real good. It's pretty horrifying how hard being gracious with one another is. And yet, Jesus continues. He leaves the 99 who have not gone astray. He finds him. If he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 that never went astray. Here is one who has returned to the faith. They never were not saved. They were led astray. They yielded to temptation. They bowed down to sin. As we talked about on Wednesday night, they forgot all the magnificent works of God. And they needed to remember. And if someone comes out of something like that, there's rejoicing. Don't be so quick 
to condemn one another. And, 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 I, and I gave that long um, um, description of Paul and how it happened in First and Second Corinthians so that I may not receive an email or a phone call this week saying that I said um, we should never judge sin. I will rewind this in your presence to make sure that you heard me properly. Of course, we're not supposed to tolerate sin. And it's clear in the Bible that the church is not supposed to play with sinfulness in its midst or like in its midst or else like a leaven it spreads. That's clear. But we so often never look at the, 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 the fallen brother or sister as someone in need of rescue. I probably shouldn't say this because my kids are in here. But didn't anyone want to, when they were growing up, want to be a superhero? Or if you're almost 50 and still want to be a superhero? <laughs> well, it's a good thing that, that, that that's something that's innate in us, that's desire to rescue. Because if you're in each other's lives, like really in each other's lives, you know there's all kinds of rescue. Love each other like the shepherd loves his sheep. Value each other like Christ values you. And then when we get to church discipline, it's going to make a whole lot more sense if you have it as part of the whole story. The church is to adore each other because of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, grant us mercy. Grant us the grace we we don't have at times with one another, even within close friends, family, God, give us Christ-centered eyes when we speak to and minister to one another. Let us have the heart of the shepherd, the chief shepherd, Christ. Lord, we pray as we continue our time of worship that you would be glorified in Christ's name. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.